everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. In this episode today, we are going to talk to our co-host, Hari Kondabolu, about a composite of several characters and the people that he felt seen by on screen. Plus, at the end of the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about the movie on the tip of everyone's tongue, Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. So, without further ado, let me give my co-host a proper introduction. He is a comedian and the creative force behind the 2017 documentary, The Problem with Apu. Hari Kondabolu, is there anything else we need to know about you? That's a lot of it. That's a lot I, of it. I, I, I also, I like this conversation because... I tend to be behind on all media. Like I finally Great. saw the Ma- like the Matrix two weeks ago. <laughs> it's really good, and you can't even talk to people about it anymore. So <laughs> I like this conversation because it it allows me to talk about things from from my childhood in the past, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. you know I, I actually the long term memories seen multiple set. Times. The long term yeah, memories much set. Better. It's ingrained. Are there any yeah. are there any stand up specials or anything we should know about of most recent interest you would like to direct people to? Something on something on Netflix, maybe? Oh, you mean my Netflix special Warn Your Relatives? Oh, perhaps that one. Warn Your Relatives, yes. It's really good. That's pro- <laughs> and I ha- and I have seen that one and it's it, it's quite good. And sadly still relevant as a result of the world still being shit. Wow. So. It's yeah, that that long arc of uh justice bending quite slowly. That yes. long arc of yeah, justice yeah, yeah. bending quite slowly. <laughs> um well, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and you are you're really such a special guest because you with the problem with Apu, you have you have stared directly into the face of this question, into the conceit of like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be to see oneself in a character on screen? What does it mean to not? What does it mean to be in the abs exist in the absence of that? Where it's like, I don't get the luxury of having just one where I can be like, you know what? That's me. It me really mapped onto that when I was 12. But you were like, well, through stitching together various characters over time, uh, I was able to make something resembling a map of myself. And right. you put uh, you made a fucking documentary about this question. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I, thank you so much, specifically you for coming on and doing this. This is this is a really, I think, special per- you're a really special person to have this conversation with a well, veteran I, I, of it. I appreciate it. You know, and, it, and it's funny because. You know, I don't want to make it sound as if I was not able to consume any media until, like, the things that, you know, the media that changed how I view myself yeah. or, or really impacted me, the stuff we're going to talk about. You know, I think it's it's a common thing for people of color. You have to identify yourself with whiteness because mm-hmm. that's really what is offered to you. Yeah. You know, the you have your personal role models and perhaps you have, like, you know, with – Indian culture, there's like both Bollywood and local regional film scenes. Mm-hmm. There's things like that. If you want to see brown people on screen with some level of dignity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, but at that time, you know, if if I was going to enjoy anything, I had to be able to see myself in, in white characters. But there was always a major dimension that was going to be missing. Yep. Um, but, you know, that's part of the experience of being a person of color is that out of a sense of... Uh, necessity mm-hmm. we have to we have to see the humanity and whiteness we would not be able to function without it in this in this society wow i am i'm so sorry for that very specific mandate on you to be forced <laughs> to see the humanity and whiteness oh god well, and, what and a I real say, bitch of a homework assignment on that one well i say it because it's one-sided right because mm-hmm. it, you know absolutely that's, that's the reason why there is a lack of representation, because especially back then, the idea was, you know, white America is not going to want to see, uh, you know, characters of color because mm-hmm. they can't identify them and they're not going to be able to relate to them mm-hmm. and they want to see themselves. And mm-hmm. what that's saying is I cannot see the shared experience and the common humanity in you as a person of color or as another marginalized group. I, I don't. I don't want to make the effort. I don't, I don't want need to. to make the effort. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to see that humanity in you. And so that's, you know, when I say that out of necessity we have to, mm-hmm. it means that. It's like we would not be able to enjoy anything. It would be harder to get jobs. It would be harder to make friends in different settings. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is it is incumbent upon us to actually like, you know, 
do the do the work, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not like we're actively thinking about it as doing the work, but like, you know, I, I, I you know, in any setting when you're trying to find common ground, um, you know, it, it, it helps when you actually like are part, you know, an active part of society watching <laughs> yeah, things yes. and and knowing what's going on. So, I mean, that's that's just that's what it is. So, yeah, I mean, I think the reason why it, I think it's a uh, it is this weird homework assignment is that I'm all, I'm the only one doing the homework. Like yep. if both of us were doing the homework, yep. it's one thing. But growing up, it was like. This side has to do the homework, and this side doesn't even see it as homework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we 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 think it's summer break. Right, we, we think it's summer break. Oh, there's no homework. There's there's no assigned reading. I think this I this takes me this this sort of generational question it takes me to sort of our, the the beginning of our of our media timeline here in in the the kind of exact way that I want to get into it, which is I think it, being in the age group that we are in that that like yeah. mid eighties born, it was such a fucking weird time to be coming into your formative years consuming media because we are at this like it's like the idea of progress exists but we are not we don't have like 2021 language or like the the proliferation of 2021 discourse tools at this time when like it's us it's allegedly a more liberal climate like in the 90s bill clinton is president ellen's going to come out on television it's going to railroad her entire career but will and grace are going to follow her through the door like right it is there's the new queer cinema movement is burgeoning there's a, there's an incredible black cinema movement happening in the 1990s like we are we are sort of allegedly but those are also separate sections of the video store yes yes right. and it's it's like we have this we have enough going on to think like yeah progress new millennium but then you watch it in practice and it's yes. like actually no this is still fucking cement shoes weighed down in the past and yeah. the cacophony of like the illusion of a, of a faster pace of progress with the reality of being mired in stereotype and mm-hmm. exclusionary like compartmentalizing movements of art like that is still very real and with that, you can have one of the most like creatively interesting pioneering works of animation of all time it, with, that is as live with like broad comedy as it is political commentary in The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. And it can still give you the apu that it gives you. Exactly. Right. And that's that's what makes it so complicated. It's still like one of the most influential shows of all time. There's a d- generation of comedians, myself included, that like that was their favorite show. Yeah. I was obsessed with that show. I bought the books, I, the, the episode guides. I like followed along. I knew the trivia. I was weird like, because my mom hated The Simpsons, so we didn't watch it. Like, I, oh, like, yeah, that would have been shocking. It to cut me. me yeah. out of conversations to yes. not be able to talk about The Simpsons. Well, that was the thing that was referenced constantly, mm-hmm. whether an episode of The Simpsons or, or a funny line that a, a character said that either is funny because it fits the situation you're <laughs> in right now, or it completely doesn't. But like, and that whole South d- Park, that whole South Park episode built around the jokes the, the Simpsons, Simpsons did. did it, it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this really, it's this thing where you know, part of that's. I mean, I think that's a great example of uh, this is watching The Simpsons. You're like, this isn't really made for me. It's made for for white people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yet at the same time. I'm a human being growing up in the United States from here, mm-hmm. knows the references, you know, Apu's annoying, but he still has good points. You know, like that's <laughs> yeah, the thing about, that's the complicated points. thing about Apu is mm-hmm. that like he's, uh, it, it's built on this kind of racist foundation, but he's also a, the most, one of the most complicated characters on that show. One mm-hmm. of the most interesting characters on that show. Both of those things are happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's also clear, like you're, you're making fun of my me and really making fun of my parents. Like yeah. at the end of the day, you know, no one's being like, man, Apu is just what a great representation of <laughs> yeah. uh, first generation, you know, but immigrant uh, immigrants in this yeah. country and their struggle. That no, it's like this is hilarious because it's a voice. No mm-hmm. one's saying, yeah, you know, like that's that's really what it's about. It's it's not for for us, mm-hmm. but like yeah, that's a great example. Like. That show, and, and and still in some ways, like, you watch an episode, I'm like, this is really ahead of its time. Yeah. You know, it's really forward. But with anything, it, it, get, it gets old. And the tricky thing is they've been around so long that it, you can't sweep stuff under the rug as you might do with other things mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. 
people are still watching it globally and it's this huge force so they still have this weird like you know it's like you know how uh you know you have to go back and you gotta maybe delete tweets that you tweeted <laughs> yeah. another time or anything that happened between like 2009 and 2013 yeah. if you were a comic-con twitter oh yeah like i, I didn't know that was racist <laughs> yeah. uh, to wear on halloween yeah. you know like yeah. stuff like that it's like the Simpsons can't completely do that. Yeah. So it's almost like the their front page is those images sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, really, you, what do you do with that? You can't like hide it. They've tried to hide Apu by just not talking about it, but like it's there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, you know, what happens when you're around that long. But yeah, that is like, I think to me, like that's why I think the documentary resonated with so many people, mm-hmm. you know, because... It is that thing that's mm-hmm. been around forever through different generations now, 30 plus years. It is the thing that was the cutting edge thing that if you were cool in that era, like I felt cool knowing, knowing that show, even yeah. though, you know, uh, knowing all the jokes and stuff actually made me a nerd. Yeah, I felt, <laughs> I still felt some kind, there was a cachet in knowing that show. Well, and so, like, the, in the, when you presented sort of, like, a slate of, of characters coming into this conversation, you had yeah. you had Samir from Office Space and Apu from The Simpsons in this kind of categorization of, oh, my God, yeah. they know we exist. Yes. And that is, that, as, as, as a white individual, like you said, we have, like, industry dictated, we are the, we are the quote-unquote normal, we are the baseline against other, against which things are contrast. So that idea of, like, the idea that y- it, took a thing for you to see something on TV and in film and be like, oh, wow, they know we're real. And that's something that's a that's an, a, a kind oh, of a, a lightning Jordan. bang moment you had. Like, that is wow. It's what a- not even if there was a commercial with a brown person on it, even if that person was doing a stereotypical Indian voice with a head nod. Mm-hmm. I was calling my friends, yo, there's an Indian on TV right now. <laughs> like, we would call each other. Mm-hmm. It was such a big deal, even though it's it's an awful depiction. It's like, we exist, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Whenever, when Office Space came out in the commercial, we knew that, like, this Samir character was going to be somewhat stereotypical. Mm-hmm. But it was like, we're in a movie. Right. And we're one of the leads in a movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've spoken to Ajay Simpson and Ajay, and I, Ajay Naidu, who plays Samir, and I are friends. You know, and, and, and I understand it more now because he's like, you know, some actor was going to play that part. And yeah. The thing I pride myself on is at least I could give him as much dignity as possible and mm-hmm. complexity as possible. Like, there is no call for him breakdancing. Mm-hmm. There's no call for him to know hip-hop. That's yeah. Ajay. That's what he adds to it. He's adding a level that makes him a little more interesting. Yeah. So when I watch that, I'm like, dude, it's breaking, breakdancing. This doesn't <laughs> fit anything I've seen before. Mm-hmm. And I love it. And so, I mean, but like from The Simpsons, it's like we exist... You know, I'm sure Indiana Jones, anytime there's a brown person on TV, a, a cab driver role, even if it's just a punchline, it's we exist. Yeah. You at least know that we're here. Yeah. And at a certain point, that gets kind of like, oh, no, but we're being teased for it. Yeah. And then with Samir from Office Space, it was like, oh, wow, like we're in movies now and a really good movie that mm-hmm. like I loved as a kid. And then you get like Cal Penn shows up, right? Mm-hmm. And he's in van wilder and it's kind of like we're in this film but his name is taj mahal Mahal. like his name is taj mahal right (laughs) so it's like yeah it's like already it's like you know what it is but at least okay again we we still exist and you know and and other than that the other depictions where we saw each other saw ourselves rather Mm -hmm. were in these terrible um films of the indian diaspora that we were producing for ourselves with really low budgets right films like American Daisy, which is a film, it's really like a middle class, a corny middle class Indian kids coming of age story in college mm. that Cal Penn was in, okay. uh, which I mentioned to him and he does not like to talk about. Um, <laughs> but it's but that's what we had. And I remember mm-hmm. it, everybody I knew when that thing premiered, poorly filmed, poor acting for the most part, like not a great script. It sold out every screening where it played full of brown people who were mm-hmm. hungry to see themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what we... That's what we had. So to actually break through to a mainstream thing, that's why seeing Cal blow up was such a big deal. Like, the mm-hmm. dude from American Daisy? <laughs> yeah. Like, he's over here? You know? Like, that's that's huge. So, yeah, I mean, that was our first, the first move was, like, we exist. Mm-hmm. Our our ethnicity exists. And mm-hmm. whatever form we're being shown, we at le- you at least know we're here. Yeah. 
I was watching I was watching Harold and Kumar again to to get ready to speak with you and it had been a yeah. really long time and you know you were you have that like in this uh, the the sort of slug you put next to was like oh my god we're not just stereotypes but we're full human beings it and, was huge and a thing that the, a thing that like I was so bowled over by when I was watching this last night was I was like wow I actually, I, I can't, I, I could not at the top of my head at that moment name another studio comedy with two South Asian, South Asian, East Asian actors who were just, who were both like comedic leads, romantic leads, who yes. were, who were not desexualized, who yes. were, who were dirt bags, but also enterprise, like who were just yeah. people, who were people, just yeah. the full spectrum of people. And then at the same time, there was all of this very 2000s bullshit of the entire movie where it, the entire B plot of Harold and Kumar is like LOL fag jokes. Like the yeah, entire, yeah. and it is, it really, what really, what really. Straight white dude still wrote this. Yes. And, and he is, I love that in this movie, uh, Kum, uh, Kumar is the lead. I love that in this movie, uh, Cal Penn is the lead and Ryan Reynolds is like a cameo that comes in and he's just like a side guy in a hospital. In, in which, in which. In, in, in uh, Harold and Kumar. He's, he's, an, he's like, a, he's in the operating theater when they come in and they suddenly have to like, Cal he, has to. He be, is? Yeah. He's like, doctor, we need you. And he's the one who rushes Ryan them into the Ryan Reynolds operate. is in Harold and Kumar? I R- don't remember this at all. Ryan Reynolds is a side appearance part to Cal That's Penn's leading funny. man in Harold and Kumar. And what it, what it really, what really struck me about just like all of the gay jokes over and over again throughout this movie was the way that limited opportunity robs people of any intersectionality whatsoever. Like, yeah, but it also is the like, like, we're mainstream American. We can do homophobia too. We, we and well, and it's also, and it, this hat, this has to be one of the only studio movies ever with, with that demographic of lead who is also a queer man. Right. Like, Cal Penn announced recently, right. like he is, he is engaged to his and, man, and his Neil Patrick Harris and makes Neil, a cameo. Yep, yeah. and and it is just like wow for all of the things that this is when you when for the realities of the moment that things mm-hmm. have to exist in, like how you how you said, like it has to be, it has to provide everything when there are no options around it for it to be That's anything right. else, and it is such. I just, I was watching it and I was just so mad at just like the fucking fact of the compromise that had to be like all of this. Like, I was like, oh my, like there's, there are astute ways that this movie is undermining the ways in which both of these men, John Cho and Kyle Penn are stereotyped constantly. And then it's like, but at the same time, these writers can't resist just like sprinkling in a bunch of gay jokes. It's like, we were so close. It was in our hands and you still had to. Do this yeah, because of course. it can only be, it can only be so much movement forward, and particularly in the aughts. My God, it can be only so much movement forward at one time. It was an Asian South Asian version of a movie that didn't, you know, you could have rewritten that film without like the culturally specific references, and mm-hmm. it's a stoner film, you know, <laughs> absolutely, right. And at the same time, it's really hard to explain this if you weren't there when that film came out oh, and you weren't Asian or South Asian. It was our Black Panther. And that's really sad because it's not Black Panther. <laughs> for real, for and real. It's and it's a weed movie. It's not a brilliant fr- film by any means. But the fact that we existed mm-hmm. and we were empowered by it, like every Asian, South Asian person I knew went to see that film multiple times if possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went to White Castle after the film and I got sick because, of course, I did. <laughs> because of but course. there was such a long line of people who came from the movie <laughs> to get, go to White Castle after, as if that was supporting the movement in some <laughs> weird way. But it was such a big deal. Like you can't, like I can't even explain to you what Harold mm-hmm. and Kumar meant. And you look at it objectively now. If anything, it explains to you how sad it is that that is a groundbreaking film. But mm-hmm. it was. It was the biggest deal. And not only. You know, is there an Asian and a South Asian person mm-hmm. in the film? They're friends and yeah. they hang out and they, they have experiences the way, you know, we've had experiences. And part of that has to do with the writers growing up with South Asian and Asian people mm-hmm. and like going to their houses, being friends with them and realize these are our friends. Why do they get depicted that way? Mm-hmm. The homophobia is another conversation right. that's all that's very present. But like you could tell like, OK, but did you not have any queer friends at all? Like, yeah. How did this? <laughs> yeah, no. 
All right, we are going to take a quick break, and when we get back, Hari is going to discuss the sketch show Goodness Gracious Me and how this composite of media has affected his own work. Well, Manolo, we have a show to promote. It's called After Game Show. It's a family-friendly podcast where listeners submit games and we play them with callers from around the world. Oh, sounds good. New episodes uh, happen every other Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. It's a, it's a fast and loose oasis of absurd innocence and naivete. And Are you writing a poem? No, and just saying things from my memory. And uh, it's a nice break from reality. <laughs> Is that, are we allowed to say that? I don't know. It sounds bad. It comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. It does not. <laughs> Come for the games and stay for the chaos. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola, and I'm speaking to comedian and filmmaker Hari Kondabolu. Now, I, a, a thing that you did also point out was, which something that uh, maybe listeners might not be as familiar with, but, you know, film and TV is globalized, so maybe, but the BBC show Goodness Gracious Me. Oh, yeah. And, and you Goodness really, Gracious Me. You really held that up in, like, talking and, like, bringing these forward to be like, this was huge for me and and why was that what what did you find in there that that was so different from what you would experience to that point goodness gracious me you know there there were there were two figures that were actually from other countries that kind of like shook me one was russell peters the stand-up comic existing because he had a canadian stand-up special half-hour special which first of all i was shocked that one brown dude with a stand-up special right two Canada has stand-up specials. They have their own comedy <laughs> network with spe- like the whole right. comedy now. What is comedy now? What is comedy and, now? And so that was huge because it's like, oh my god, this is you know, because stand-up has always been that thing that felt so empowering and that so many people broke ground, right? Right. right. Because like it's a person talking from their perspective without someone else giving them words to say, mm-hmm. without a white person saying that's not going to play. Right. It's like if you make them laugh, it's proof. You don't mm-hmm. need to think. It may or may not play. If it, there's laughter, it's proof. Mm-hmm. So, like, the way Margaret Cho, like, blew my mind when I saw her, because she's even though she's Korean-American, she's talking about her immigrants. She mm-hmm. has control of a crowd that is mixed, and people respect her, and they find her funny. Mm-hmm. Like, Russell's existence was, wow, and a brown dude can do the same. Mm-hmm. Like, that was that was huge. The other big thing that came from another country where I could see, like, this is possible. Like, what I'm experiencing in this country doesn't have to be this way right. was Goodness Gracious Me, mm. which was a BBC show. Uh, and again, what's really important is to know is that in, in the UK, we're like South Asians or as they refer to us, they're Asians yes. are like a giant community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, so Goodness Gracious Me was a South Asian sketch comedy show, which is kind of like the brown and living color of the UK. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that okay. kind of groundbreaking. Like, that's it's like massive. Okay. Yeah. It's huge. And for a community, it's like this is the show that speaks to us from us with sketches about, you know, I mean, they had to cover so much stuff. There was what, like, the Bunger scene of that time, uh, you know, pop culture stuff, mm-hmm. colonialism, ra- like different types of racism. That's the differences between Muslim Sikhs and Hindus, and how we argue amongst ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, forcing ourselves to assimilate, and what ridiculous assimilators call you know like we're, we're no we're the we're not the kapoors we're the coopers you know like <laughs> yeah. th- like you know what i mean there there's inside characters like the uncle that claims everything is created in india and was stolen but there's also this kind of like deeper understanding of like like the most famous sketch they have is called going for an english mm-hmm. and it's based on this idea because south asian the curry is the international is curry basically is like the the national food of the UK, chicken tikka mm-hmm. masala. Like that's like that's the first. British- I think the first time I ever clocked curry as a thing that exists was watching like was watching British move and people talking about like gonna go down to get oh, a curry. Like that exact, was going that for was a curry. The, yeah, the first go- time I was like, what's that thing? You either said going for or going for an Indian, and oh. so so it's the idea that like okay, we're drunk. 
these Indian restaurants are open late at night. Mm-hmm. We're going to go. We're going to eat. The, this was like the fast food mm-hmm. that like you know, people like. But that's how they treated Indian restaurants. Rowdy whites going and making a mess and whatever. <laughs> so uh, what this sketch going for in English is it takes place, I think, in Bombay or New Delhi. And it's a bunch of drunk Indian people <laughs> at a quote unquote English restaurant <laughs> where they're ordering way too much, mm-hmm. where they're saying ignorant things about the food. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, I think you're supposed to share this. I think that's how they eat it. Or, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, instead of talking about like, oh, this food's going to give me diarrhea. It's about this food's going to make me constipated. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, it's an English restaurant. Yeah, you've got to have something English. No spicy shakes. Mm, but Nitin, you know, I don't like anything too bland here. Yeah, have something a little bland, huh? Hey, Jemas, what have you got that is not totally tasteless? <laughs> Uh, the steak and kidney pie is only a little bit there. Uh, there you go, Nina. Steak and kidney pee. Yeah? No, yeah, it knocks me right up. I won't go to the toilet for a week. Nina, that's the point of going for an English. It's this perfect reverse. It's treating the white waiter, British waiter, like crap, as mm-hmm. if he doesn't even exist. Like, it's all, it's just this perfect reversal. And to see that was like the most empowering thing because it was so funny. Mm-hmm. And it was, I under, even though it was another culture that doesn't quite look the same here, I understood, oh, you're fighting back and this is hilarious. Right. And the fact that this is crucial, it was on, B, I think, BBC Two back then before satellite television, this was the early 2000s and cable became this big thing. You had like four or five channels, if if that many, the BBC, BBC Two, Channel Four. You only had a handful of channels. And so when something appeared on television, you only had a handful of places you could go if you wanted to watch television. So this show is not seen as a niche show because it's it's like a big chunk of the audience is going to try it because what how many options do you have to try? And so all of a sudden you have a generation learning about the, these kinds of issues that that Asians in, in the UK feel and like the inside jokes and the frustrations you wouldn't have known and the fighting back of racism. Like they're watching this and being influenced by it. And it's their mainstream. And that like shook me. My friend Abby introduced this to me uh, using a video cassette of the best of uh, season two, I think, that she had. It was in college. And I remember I learned a lot in college and I'm going to chalk that up to one of those things that wasn't on a curriculum that changed my life. Like seeing that, seeing the world as bigger than just the U.S. and seeing like the possibility, you know, when you're told Indians don't do that, you know, Indians are doctors and lawyers. Indians, The idea that there's this whole culture that had a wave of, you know, uh, South Asian, like, culture hitting the mainstream whether it was bungra and, and music corner shop whether it was like you know goodness gracious me and then later uh the kumars at 42 like it's huge it's like this can happen and it just gave me a little bit of hope that maybe that could be us someday well and that was and that's something i want to ask about is and you know as how does that impact the work like what is coming from a particular like you know sphere of media culture here in the states and then to yeah. seeing like have the world open a little bit and have that option put in front of you like you're obviously a creative you, you you've gone on into film and television like what does that do for you as somebody who I, and that's a, a big thing that i think about with this with this con- conceit in this podcast is right. i think it turns people who have had less options into creative geniuses in a way uh, because of how much headcanoning they have to do in their lives to create something for themselves. I think it creates a kind of imagination and flexibility and curiosity in people who might not innately have to do so much work to look and see themselves. So what what is what did that like do for you as, as somebody who was going to go into this career? There's a degree of rebellion when you don't see yourself even existing to even be in a profession where you're not represented. Completely, yeah. By its very nature, you're already like you know, breaking norms culturally, what your parents expect. So already there's a degree of bravery there. Mm-hmm. Stand up in particular is one because you're also like direct to audience. There's a level of of, of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's bravery in that. To be in a writer's room, be the only brown person in a writer's room, the weight of that and what you have to, I mean, that's all those things. Like you're, you're constantly the, this person that has to like, whether inform or say that's not a good idea, you know, 
Well, yeah, I think it, also... in the in the problem with the poo, you spoke to the creator of that that cartoon. Uh, was it Rancho Cucamonga? Yes, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He talked about going around the room and like, what do you, you know, what do you do on this project? How and, are we making the show? Yeah, and him standing How up and saying, "How are we making the show?" I'm Indian. That's and the rest of them are white executives. That's what I bring right. to this show. So I mean, you know, when you're when you're when you're working with like not much, you have to think outside the box to find a way to get in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you have to find a way to to like breakthrough and sometimes that meant taking roles you didn't want to take to eventually get to the other stuff but like you you had to find that i mean for me one thing that i found and especially true with this apu documentary Mm -hmm. is our old is your new which i never had really thought about quite you know until kamau bell because i was writing on his show totally biased Mm -hmm. asked me to do a piece about mindy kaling having a new having a new show and i did like a you know, a rundown of South Asian representation my my whole childhood, mm-hmm. what we had, you know, and how bad it was. And I didn't want to do it initially because it felt kind of corny. I mean, like, this is like I made a I made a short film called Minoj about this Apu business like in 2006. Mm-hmm. Why do I still want to talk about this creatively? This is kind of boring. Yeah, that was like 2012 and, or 2013 for you at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's a 2012 and it was kind of like, why am I... T-? And then he's like, well, you've talked about it. Your community has right. talked about it. Rest of America hasn't talked about it. So this is you know, you're, they don't... Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not hacky to everybody else. Totally. It's not a thing they even think about. And that was something that was kind of shocking to me. It's like, wow, all the stuff we thought about or maybe worked on or wrote in, you know, in college... Uh, South Asian college nights mm-hmm. where we'd write sketches or whatever, you know, people did at the time because we're making our own entertainment. All that pays off now because all of a sudden we're like, nobody knows about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I make the Apu documentary, it's still weird for me because it doesn't feel creatively, to be honest, incredibly fulfilling right, as yeah. a person who wants to try new angles. Mm-hmm. It's something I knew. Mm-hmm. What's more interesting to me is people's reactions to it, which is a mix of anger mm-hmm. and being blown away. Yeah, and that becomes the story. But same thing with like fresh off the boat. Yeah, you know, I know Eddie didn't think it. You know, Eddie Wong didn't think it was his story because it really wasn't his story. He has a much like more you know, darker, edgier yeah. life. What it was was the um, Asian American family show that should have existed a decade plus before yeah. after all American girl with Margaret Cho got canceled. Mm-hmm. It's like you're catching up. So our old is is everyone else's new because we haven't even been acknowledged. Right. So, you know, that's something that I think about a lot. Like a lot of that that work we did um and a, a lot of the stuff that was happening in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. There's something to it. It's about, you know, it's there's still interesting things to talk about from those eras because we weren't allowed to talk and we're doing catch up. Yeah. Like we're you didn't like you're getting to know us. We were your long lost sibling that was there the whole time that you (laughs) never paid attention to. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get to know us so we can talk as equals. And now we're going to take another quick break. But when we get back, we are going to talk about the comedian Stuart Lee, the state of stand up and so much more. So stay tuned. Hey, I'm Janet Varney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, disappointment, and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm your host, Jordan Crucial, and I'm speaking to Hari Kondabolu. Now, one of the figures that you brought up before the interview as someone that influenced you uh, is the comedian Stuart Lee. And I wanted to give you a chance to speak on that a bit. Stuart Lee, I mean, that's very much more of a 
a a as a stand up comedian, yeah. my identity as a stand up comedian, and as someone who believes in not being restricted to just set mm-hmm. up punchline, yeah. but to be able to tell a story and play with structure. I'd been dabbling with stuff like that when I was living in Seattle when I started doing comedy, and I just loved when you were able to like really screw with what the audience expected in terms of what a show could look like, right? right? right. Whether it's integrating live sketch into a stand-up set or, you know, you know, just writing jokes that kind of fall into themselves. And yeah, I was struggling to do it because I'd never really seen it. Right, yeah. And and also with the content that I was writing, which which I still write, which is often, for lack of a better term, political, you know, I'm talking about race and gender and sexuality and whatever I, I find fascinating and important or, or angers me, you know, or, you know, moves me. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to talk about it. It's from an honest place. I see Stuart Lee, his first, the first show I saw him do was the 41st greatest standup. Mm-hmm. And it just blew me away. Cause I'm like seeing this guy do the kinds of things I never thought were possible mm-hmm. that I always wanted to see or do, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd written this bit about political correctness being like a, a positive thing, what it means. And it was like two or three small punchlines. Mm-hmm. And then he does the definitive bit about it. <laughs> Eight minutes. And what is political correctness? It's, a, it's an often clumsy negotiation towards a kind of formally inclusive language. And there's, there's all sorts of problems with it, but it's better than what we had before. But 84% of people think political correctness has gone mad. And you don't want one of those people coming up to you after the gig and going, well done, mate. Uh, well done, actually, for having a go at the fucking Muslims. <laughs> <laughs> well done, mate. You know, you can't do anything in this country anymore, mate. It's political correctness gone mad. You know, you can't even write racial abuse in excrement on someone's car (laughs) without the politically correct brigade (laughs) jumping down your throat. Long and windy and full of thoughtful moments and commentary and uh, uh, bits and pieces of self-awareness and uh, teasing himself a little bit. And uh, also in terms of the form, there's parts of anything Stuart Lee does Mm -hmm. that can be incredibly excruciating, Mm -hmm. very slow. But the (laughs) fact that he has such control and confidence that the audience will be there because he's, he knows Mm -hmm. that he's, he's got them. Mm -hmm. Like I'm seeing this and I'm like, silence doesn't need to be a bad thing. Right, right, right. Silence does not have to... Silence is a weapon. It is a tool in your arsenal, mm-hmm. and it's how you use it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, also, you know, one lesson I learned when I saw Paul Mooney do stand-up, and he was the first comic that, after, like, Margaret Cho, that I'm like, holy crap, like, you can... <laughs> Like, white people don't need to like everything you do. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to walk people. Stuart Lee taught me, like, you don't need to, like, do this, uh, like, a straightforward stand-up this and then leads to that and this then leads mm-hmm. to that, you know? you don't. It doesn't need to work. Though. It can work any way you want it to work, mm-hmm. you know? Even failure is a potential punchline. Right. Like, I- I'm viewing comedy in ways I'd never seen before or ways that I, like, started to think about but just... After a while, you're just like, nobody's doing stuff like this. So how on earth am I even, I'm scared enough to do stand up the way I'm doing it. And I'm thinking about it. And you watch him and you're like, anything is possible. Mm -hmm. And it's foolish to think otherwise. Like stand up is so free. Why would you put any parameters on it? It, Yeah. I mean, it is kind of, it's sort of an, it's sort of an ultimate amorphous art form. I mean, any stand, and stand ups who are like you know especially after hannah gatsby's special came out it's like, that's not really stand-up that's not really stand-up first of all who gives a shit <laughs> yeah, that's the gives, first thing why are you arguing this semantic shit? what's your fucking problem because you're they're arguing it because one it's successful and they don't want to be compared against it <laughs> and, you know because that's not what i do right and two they're so stuck in their ways that the idea of it not looking the way they do it is scary mm-hmm. And it, it frustrates me because stand-ups of all people should know how there's no rules. Mm-hmm. They right. stand-ups hate rules, right? And also, it, just like, in terms definitionally, of, shouldn't stand-up comics hate rules? Like, shouldn't also you stand is performing on a pool, performing on a pool table in front of a, a group of drunks while uh, a, a a bunch of TV screens are on. <laughs> That's that's gigs. I haven't done that gig, but I've had friends who've done that gig. And you're telling me that's not stand up Uh shows where they forget the mic is not stand up. (laughs) It's stand up like stand ups of all people should know there there are no rules. There are never any rules. And 
you know, also let, uh, there is this thinking, I can kill in front of any, every audience. And I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't need to. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Nah. <laughs> nah, it's like, because I know what that could look like. And yeah. I know what I'm sacrificing for that. Okay, so with the combined forces of an innovator in your life, like Stuart Lee, and an innovator in her own right, like Hannah Gadsby, who really challenged the format of stand-up comedy and, and what it could mean and what what a what a person could do with it, having getting to the point where there you have you have enough options for people that look like you on screen to not necessarily know all the things that are happening at one time that somebody could tell you something that you were like, holy shit, that's a surprise, like with the you know, with this the, is what stand up does. This is what all good art does. You're not supposed to expect every move, right? And so, and so, what I'm, what I want to know is, with the, with it seems like a a capacity, a surprising in your own brand capacity for hope and a potential for surprise that mm-hmm. seems like a newer development, along with those like the formative, like the Stuart Lee, you know, still mapped in your mind of like the, the of the possible. What at this moment of rapid sort of progression or movement and all the possibility of story to tell how does that affect like you and your work like how does that affect like the next like well gosh the thing i want to do now is the thing i didn't actually think was possible before the thing i want to do now finally Mm. feels like i can come up with a i can bring a new idea instead of an idea that i've been already talking about with my friends and my peer group for decades already like is there any is there is that like does that help give like a new germ of creativity for you in a lot of ways one in terms of stand-up i'm talking about more personal things Mm -hmm. like family and for years i avoided that because of this idea oh he's like he's just talking about his immigrant parents and like that, that, that's what you'd expect. And I didn't want to be, you know, because I've heard people whisper that in the past. So I, I stopped. I just avoided talking about my family or anything that was personal in that way. And then after a while, I'm like, this is bullshit. Everybody talks about their parents. Everybody. Every single human being, every comic in some way or another talks about how they grew up. And it's racist to say, I can't. Like, <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? Sick. You know what I mean? And, and, I never even thought about it till the last few years. I'm like, this is, I'm denying myself this part that is going to open myself up to an audience. And mm. part of what makes me comfortable doing that mm. is that there, there, that is something that is happening, that mm. our stories are being told. It is not like, I'm not a complete outlier. You know, you see different examples of how that's done. And that feels good. It feels mm-hmm. good to be like, you know, I get, now I get to do mine and it's not as bizarre a thing. And all those people who said that, were, you know, they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> So that's one thing. Creatively, in terms of like wanting to create television shows and films and programs, I'm like, you know, before you'd have an idea and I would just like, you know, you just go into the life of touring and you're like, uh, I'll get to it later and you never get to it. And you and part of that is the confidence. You're like, nobody's going to buy this. Mm. And now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, they, <laughs> they actually might. And they actually are willing to look at it and they're not going to dismiss it based just on people won't relate to it. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to hear your experience. Like once those thoughts r- get removed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and ev- and everybody has them to different degrees. And, you know, and that's why I've always admired those folks who like, like Kumail just went head first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like there was, it never felt like he had hesitation. It's yeah. like, I am this person. I'm going to do everything. Mm-hmm. And when you see that, it's like, you can't help but be inspired. Then why can't I, mm-hmm. you know? And he's my peer. Mm-hmm. And I still like, am in awe of like, dude, you do everything. And you've never, you've never had this moment of like, I can't, at least it doesn't feel like it. You know, there, there's something about that that's incredibly inspiring. So those are like the kinds of things where I'm like, I'm, I have more ideas. I'm pitching them. Mm-hmm, I am mm-hmm. capable of doing this. Like it always, <laughs> it always takes me forever to do anything because I, <laughs> I, in part because I don't think anybody wants it or, you know, because I've grown up in the setting where my voice wasn't valid. And so, you know, I remember my first uh, album, I took forever to finally decide to record it. It was Kamal that pushed me. It's like, You've been doing comedy since you were 17. It's 2013. Just record an album already. Yeah, yeah, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I, I was like, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready for a Netflix special. And, you know, I was like, <laughs> you've been ready for what do you You've already released two albums and you have enough material for three Netflix specials. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> it often ends up being Kamau or somebody else saying, what are you doing? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But, you know, like you are capable of doing this. And then when you get it, I'm like, I can't believe I got it. And he's like, you, of course you were going to get it. Like, I've been telling you you were going to get it. 
it's like it, but it's that kind of like you know try trying to believe that like we're not it's not the same era and it's just so hard because it's like there is this degree of being grateful for what you have yeah because you know just holding on to that is is hard enough and they're going to take everything away right and eventually nobody wants my voice but then to not only to double down on you have something special and people do care and there's a lot of people mm-hmm. like when I was getting grilled for the Apu documentary mm-hmm. by so many people who hadn't even seen the film from all over the world with death threats and anger and stuff like that. The fact that there's so many people, maybe not the same numbers, but a large number of people who were moved by it, who mm-hmm. shared it with their children, mm-hmm. who wished this kind of stuff was around when they were younger, who, you know, this like that stuff, you know, that's the stuff that keeps me going. That's the stuff that I'm like... Yes. If <laughs> yes. this resonated the way it did, if this is still being talked about, if this is being taught in college classes, apparently, right. which is still amazes me. That's incredible. Like me becoming required reading is a new concept. <laughs> oh, right. Right. You know, like clearly there is something. It's, ri- it's weird when people send me curriculum and it's either clips of my stand up or my special or the obviously the Apu documentary, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's. It's like clearly there is something here Mm -hmm. that people are clinging to and find still Mm -hmm. like the best example of this particular thing. I can't find another example. This works as hell. Like there's clearly something I'm doing that's that that's special that people are interested in. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so that's I mean, that's big. It's just those kind of because performers confidence is already, you know, can be very thin, like from show to show it can it can change. But you you take that and you add, you know just a history of not being heard Mm -hmm. or not existing, you know, that can seep in pretty deep. And sometimes it's hard to break through. You just don't think you deserve it. You don't think it's going to happen. You don't think nobody wants, no no one is interested in hearing from you. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of the quality of your work. No. And that's the other thing that's, it's not because I'm not capable. It's just nobody. And then you have to remind yourself you are capable People do want to hear it. There's a reason all these other things have happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, and and that, you know, so I think seeing what I'm seeing right now gives me tons of hope. I'm so glad you've arrived at the at the very counterintuitive place where you have a little <laughs> bit more of that. That's yeah, very... absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, oh, Kari. Course. I really, really appreciate it. This is, I've been getting more and more excited for this conversation all week long, and, and because you have approached this this topic so specifically before, and and I've been really looking forward to hearing your input on these things and getting to kind of like go through little tributaries with you. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Is there anything else you would like to to plug for people before we head out? Anything no, else I, you would I, like to direct them that, to? That's great. Yeah, the, the documentary on HBO Max. HBO Max, now it, yes. It's available on HBO Max. Get Just tell people to watch it because people have opinions and they haven't seen it. <laughs> and, and my Netflix special that I'm still super proud of, Warn Your Relatives. I'd love for them to see that. Yeah, yeah. Warn Your Relatives on Netflix. The Problem with the Pooh is on HBO Max. And thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. I thank really you, appreciate Jordan. it. Appreciate it. That was fun. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Hari Kondabolu. Please go check out The Problem with the Pooh. It holds up. Um, Check out his stand-up special on Netflix. And, you know, support. Support the arts. Support the artists. But before we end today, I, of course, wanted to circle back to a topic most important. And that is a topic I feel like is sorely lacking in conversation. In people actually coming to me and conversing with me about it. And that is... Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City, a.k.a. the reboot of the Resident Evil film franchise for the first time in like 20 years uh, that doesn't involve Mila Jovovich and Paul W.S. Anderson. I didn't play the Resident Evil games. I don't know anything about them except for what I know from the movies, uh, starring Mila Jovovich, they were much more sci-fi forward from what I understand. The Resident Evil games are horror games. They're, they're, they're scary. And they're, they're monster games. And the new Welcome to Raccoon City feels like a horror movie. It feels like a monster movie. And also it feels, it feels so 2000s in this way that I can't tell if the filmmaker was just 
the team was just like super clever and they made a movie that feels like the 2000s while making a period piece from 1998 because this movie is not going to let you forget that it's 1998 we've got palm pilots we've got garbage like the band like the awesome garbage like shirley manson like we we have this world that is back in time and kind of i'm sort of shocked at how effectively the period piece aspect of it comes through it also guys this movie looks really good like i i um my friend the dear sam weinman who i host the odds pod with me and him went and saw this together we we saw a promo for this we're like guys we gotta go it, we have to go to see resident evil so this was appointment viewing for us and where where are all of you where are all of you is what i want to know because this movie should be this should be our next kick-ass mid-tier mid-budget video game franchise like this is the video games are so famously hard to do well on screen but the resident evil ones always kind of they always did such a good job with it because they kind of seem to understand the assignment and i feel like raccoon city understands the assignment like it's not trying to be the world of warcraft game slash world of warcraft movie that was like oh my god why are we doing this big world of warcraft already exists we don't need this movie to punch so hard and hit so softly and but then like if we're not going to go back to the 90s of like fucking virtuoso avant-garde cinema in something like the super mario brothers adaptation which is some weird like monty python shit when you watch it again now i'll kill that welcome to raccoon city is like the sweet spot for what i feel like video game adaptations should try to accomplish especially like action genre oriented ones we got a great we got a great cast here we got Kaya Scodelario, um, maybe you know her as Effie, the sociopath from Skins, or maybe you know her as Maze Runner. She should have been the lead there, but now she's the lead here, and she is, as one of my favorite uh, Twitter personalities and writers, Vice Victus classifies her, one of our best action-packed white girls. Show up for Kaya Scodelario. We've got Avon Joja being a cop who doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground, but goddammit, he's gonna get through the zombie apocalypse regardless. We've got pretty great practical effects on our monsters just like ripping the throats out of people we've got really rich warm beautiful lighting in these settings that like by all rights didn't have to look as good as they did i don't know there's all this talk every once in a while i don't know fucking constantly if you're on film twitter about like cinema you know go to the movies and watch come on come on so you can save cinema and like yeah go watch come on come on but also go see venom too Go see Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. You are, in fact, helping to save cinema, I guess, by just, like, being a participant at movie theaters. So just, like, the great thing about genre is that it's, like, the live concert experience of movies. Like, it's the ones we can go and sort of scream and yell and have a fun, interactive time with. And that's why there's still such a perfect refuge for the cinema, even if you're like, but I could watch this at home for my price of my streaming subscription or just a cool $3.99. Go have a time of revelry and joyousness with Kaya, with the zombies, with Resident Evil. And let's like, let's get this, let's earn this movie a sequel. Because I kind of feel like we finally got the Resident Evil franchise that we probably already always deserved. And that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Feeling Scene Pod or join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash feeling scene pod and you can also send us an email at feeling scene at maximumfun.org if you want to follow me i'm jorker on twitter our theme music is by andrew epen our producer is casey o'brien our senior producer is kevin ferguson and this is a production of maximum fun MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.